the city of New Jerusalem, on the city of New Jerusalem, the Lord lifts me up above the city of New Jerusalem and I see the two prophets. They are now standing above the city of New Jerusalem. But not exactly above at an angle. So the city is over there. So they see above but from an angle. And then for the first time, now I can describe to you the skyline of that city, the skyline of the city of New Jerusalem. And uh, beautiful, beautiful, I don't have words to describe that city. Extremely beautiful. Unbelievably beautiful city. I have no words to describe that city. And so, the buildings are white. The buildings are white. They are white. But, as though gold tinge. So it's very costly. Very expensive city. You could tell the treasure the city beholds. And gold. And, because it's white, but gold. It's a gold tinge. It's like with a gold tinge. So it's very costly. That, that is the impression I get. Very costly city. Very expensive city. Very top city. The home of the righteous. And as I'm looking at that city, of course then at one point, God the Father makes me see the Lord. He makes the Lord stand there. So the Lord is a little bit taller than the buildings. So there is that part. You remember when I was live on radio? That I saw the Lord standing there. But I want to describe the buildings of the city of New Jerusalem. And so, I could see the skyline of the buildings. I could see how treasured the buildings are. Very beautiful, awesome. And I could also see the architecture. He that releases architecture from the heavenly chambers, the upper chambers of the treasures of, of God in heaven, once in a while he releases a new architecture for mankind. Once in a while he releases wisdom about economy, economics for mankind to help the church. Once in a while he releases wisdom for new medicines to help mankind. You know that. You know that everything belongs to the Lord. Without him, you can't even wake up. No breathing. Even medicine. For them to discover a new drug, he can open it up for them to help the church. So from the upper chambers there, from those chambers, you can imagine he that does that for you, you can imagine the city has prepared for you. And so, what shocked me about the architecture, the buildings from the skyline, even from when I see them in this angle, are like this. And you have one, so sharp up there, and then you have one side, and you have one side, and you have the other side, but they all meet up there. Beautiful, beautiful. And the edges, the straight line that divide the different sides, the straight line there, from where I was looking at, from, you could, I mean, I think for you, that would be, you are very nice, like as though someone has put some light, some bulbs, along those columns. I mean, the, that demarcation there but the glitter that's why I said it looks golden it was quite almost golden and the glory of God was pervading the whole place the home of the writers that's what I want us to talk about the new Jerusalem that's why I've invited you that we may talk about this when all this rubbish on the earth here will have finished there is a home an eternal home so there is a home that is prepared for the righteous. So that day will come. 
That is my biggest joy every day. That that day will come. Finally it will come. And I will tell you, I told you. I told you to prepare for another place. I told you not to be content with your lives, whatever you are doing. That there is an eternal place to go to. That all this will come to an end. That day is coming. And so, you can imagine the beauty of that city. The skyline, beautiful. And it's so golden, it's so white. It's white, glorious, but the tinge of golden as in costly, expensive. I think you wanted to make that impression. The golden tinge. I know that all of you would want to go to that city. That city is the city of God. The city of God. It is also the city of... Uh, in other words, it's your city. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. Those that will be found righteous on that day. The golden city. The glorious city. The eternal home of the righteous. Ay, beautiful. Finally, weeping is over. Mourning is over. Death is over. When you enter there. Oh yes. Who doesn't want to go there? That is the day of truth I'm waiting for. When I want to know who really was born again. So we'll know who was really actually born again. Who was really born again. Because that is the day when the true born again. The day of reckoning. Reality will be known. Hallelujah. And then the next day. The Lord does now take me into the temple inside the city. And this is what the Lord shows me. This big pillar you see here. Totally super glorious. So as the Lord was walking with the two prophets, normally the Lord walks on the right hand side. Right, like this. But it looked like this time, the voice, he was coming from this side. Because when we approach the pillar, and then his glory beamed from this side over the pillar. and make you, you, Those of you tuned in on radio, you heard, made it a little silverish now. The glory now beamed on it, became silverish. That's when I realized that, oh, he that was speaking, he has got the Father. Hallelujah. The moment of truth. Man walking with God. That is not a joke. This is a new normal for Bible, huh? And then the glory beamed on the pillar, and then they became silver, shinier now. When his presence, when he brought us close by. But he was essentially giving us a tour of the city. A tour of that city. A tour of the city of New Jerusalem. The tour of the inside of the temple. And the temple of the Lord is essentially the dwelling place of God the Father. The temple of the Lord is the sanctuary of God. That's where now the, it is the throne of God. That's now the throne of God. Hallelujah. Tremendous. Look at how glorious. Who would it want to be in that presence? And the contrast for that is called hell. H-E-L-L. The contrast for it. The opposite of that is unbearable. Hallelujah. And so, this is what we have at hand. The city of New Jerusalem. Then now the temple. And giving a tour to his two prophets of the temple. About this pillar. And we know that if you read. These are just introduction. I'm just laying foundation for the message today. right? If you read now the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 verse 12. Hallelujah. Revelation chapter 3 verse 12. He says. I begin 11. He says. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. 
so that no one will take your crown. Meaning there is constantly somebody in your jurisdictions, wherever you are, in this world, who is always, there is, you know that person. He's always trying to come for your crown to take it away. So he's warning here that hold on to what you have when it comes to matters of entry that nobody may steal your crown, take away your crown. Hallelujah. And then he goes on to say, verse 12 now, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. The one who overcomes, the overcomer, the victorious, the one who is victorious, the victor. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Does somebody remember that statement? Now you begin to understand after the Lord, those that overcome, if you overcome, like them too, if you overcome. So now listen to this now. He's saying, whoever is victorious, overcomers, overcomes. Overcome what? Sin. And the miniature version of sin is self. Do you know that the biggest Satan is yourself? Is self. I will later define it as flesh, but self. And that is the little world in you, the world. Overcome the world. Are we together? Overcome the world. And so, so, those who overcome, he says, like that pillar, he shall establish you inside the house, the temple of God inside heaven. And that means if he's going to be talking about the pillar, showing me the pillar and come into conversation with you, then you can tell that he's talking about you taking up your residency inside heaven. And the permanence of your residency, the permanence, in other words, if he's talking about the permanence of your residency there, so he's essentially talking about the permanence of your citizenship in heaven. In other words, this pillar is also talking about everlasting life that never ends. The permanence of your citizenship, your residency inside there. And remember, pillars are a little bit different from the rest of the space in the temple. They stand out. So there is so much to transmit also. And this particular pillar there is even something more about this pillar, which I'm not sharing here. I've not yet been allowed. That I'm talking to you. The permanence of your residency there. That when you enter there, let your heart settle because you are used to panicking down there. <laughs> this, nobody takes away this from me. The permanence of your residency. Nobody's going to say, please, where are your taxes? Or where is your, renew your ID or whatever, or your passport or whatever. Session, whatever, tariffs. Apana. He said, permanent residency in the kingdom of God. That is what the Lord is talking about. Now, everything is over. At that time, everything is over. No more troubles. No more sin. No more death. No more fears. Oh, I fear to fall sick. No more sickness. No more mood swings, you know, anger and what, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and uh, depression and what have you. No. You say, please, now settle. And if that pillar talks about the everlastingness of your life inside heaven, or the permanence, permanentness, permanence of your residency inside heaven, then I can understand the message that is kicking back. It is kicking back to you the message that please use this time to prepare. Because it will benefit you. It will be beneficial. That the little time you had on earth, you prepared. So really, this is the narrative about the glorious eternal kingdom of God. The new Jerusalem, the home of the righteous. 
And you know there's a book of life, right? Which is the ledger, the list, the register of all the names. Because this message I'm going to give you now is actually their processing. How do you get processed to enter the city? The processing of the church to be able to enter into that kingdom, into that temple, into that city. The city that has no end. Does not need the sun. And on radio, I gave you quite a little bit more. Because I read from John chapter 5, 24, John 3, 36, right? That those that will believe me will not die but have everlasting life. So he's essentially trumpeting everlasting life. And the manner of conversation is so powerful that you can't claim not to understand this. It is clear. And that when you see this, you should be drawn to a greater thirst and hunger for God and the things of God. Hallelujah. So he's using this to summon your souls, right? Hallelujah. Now, how then do, how does the church get processed? Do you get processed for entry into that city? How do you get processed to enter that city? And that's why I began to talk about the process of sanctification. That is going to be our big conversation tonight. The process of divine sanctification. The divine process of sanctification. That's your big title headline. So how do you process a people to enter the eternal glorious kingdom of God? The process of sanctification. Let me first have a general overview. You call it a preamble or an abstract, an introduction with you. Now listen. There is a big misconception going on in the church at this hour. Globally. What they have done, they have simply taken the process of sanctification and they have tried to weigh the two processes together with justification. Follow me on this now. It might benefit you very much to, to listen. The process of sanctification vis-a-vis justification. Because the Bible says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And the same Bible says that by the adoption, before that adoption, once you are adopted into sonship, into the family of God, you have been justified. Owing to the great work the Messiah did, right? On the cross, right? So, the church, what they have done, like now you can see the table of the Lord has been dressed here. And everybody has been called upon to have this meal. The table of the Lord has been dressed. Everybody's coming to eat at the same table. And he's saying, finest linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So he did not say that that finest linen that was given to the church in Kenya to wear, that now they're wearing long, was different from the one in Australia. No. He says, same finest linen was given to all nations. Meaning the standard of God is the righteousness of God. If you see the righteousness of God that the two prophets from heaven are bringing and delivering into the church in Kenya here, then just take it for granted that that is the same requirement for the church in Brazil and the church in Australia. Take it for granted. So that is a given. Because the visitation is too big. They must have come from God. So that means that's the same requirement on European, South Africa, Abuja, Nigeria, wherever. Right? So now it has been dressed, right? And everybody's eating from here. But then your shock is this. Some people will come and say, no, me, I don't want this buffet. When the ants have been served, you come and serve the same meal, all of you. But now the church, the modern church, is ordering for a la carte. A la carte. It's a French word. Meaning, serve me as I want what is convenient for me. They want to take salvation according to their convenience. 
they are ordering for salvation according to their lifestyle. They want to fit it convenient, convenient into their lifestyle. That's the, the one they take. And in so doing, they have corrupted the gospel and the grace to the extent that sanctification and justification, they have actually over-elevated justification and lowered down sanctification. Because they are saying, no, 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 Jesus did it. Don't worry. But is there no effort? If you just try a little effort, say, no, 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 that's the law. That, that's not the grace. The grace said Jesus did it all. You have no part. But the same Bible says, make every what? Every effort to live in peace and be holy without which nobody sees the Lord. He's saying, because they are modern, they have said now they want salvation according to their need, their convenience. So they are picking and choosing. And then look at this now. In that process, because you know, what does justification say? Justification says once you're born again, you've been justified. You're finished. You've done it. You've made it. In fact, to the extent that I've heard some say what they're, they're unbelievable. Some say that if you want to know that you've been justified, then go and sin. Then you know that tomorrow still Jesus loves you. You still have salvation. So I've heard that. But you have also heard it. You heard it. You heard it. The day we saw it on TV, we even commented on radio. But what I'm saying is this. They are raising justification and yet that definitely bring into the fore the conversation about what are the positions of those two. Sanctification versus justification. Is there any of them that is greater or which one comes first? You understand? That is the conversation. And that's why today I want to handle this sanctification. And let me just put it to you right away from the beginning that uh, sanctification comes first and is the most important. Why have I said so? I have said sanctification comes first and is the most important because sanctification is the one that prepares you for the glorious kingdom of God. So, sanctification will sanctify you for the glorious kingdom of God, right? And when sanctification sanctifies you, look at this now. So what this other church out there, the modern church is doing, the church today is doing out there, is wrong. Because they are essentially assigning unto themselves justification. And yet, the Lord says, just focus on sanctification. And justification is mine to consign, mine to accredit, mine to assign, mine to give. It's not yours to assign yourself. Do you see where they got it wrong? They are assigning themselves justification. Then that is dangerous. How about when you find you reach the door that day and find that, wow, you have not been justified because you are not sanctified. Sanctification, then everything will be alright. Because it's up to the Lord now to justify you. Hallelujah. It's not yours. It's the Lord to do it. But sanctification, you have a role. After Jesus has done that, you have a role as we're going to see shortly. So now, Given that narrative about sanctification vis-a-vis -vis justification, can we focus on sanctification? So sanctification, what is the purpose of sanctification then? Then we want to look at this process. And I think that is why you people are called as pastors. Then your calling is to ensure there is sanctification in the house. To ensure the sheep are sanctified. Because that is how you help them to enter. As we are going to see very shortly. So then, before we look at what sanctification is, whereby we are, I'm going to define to you what sanctification is, the definition. First of all, can we first look at the purpose to give us, uh, to jump you into the water, right? What is the purpose of sanctification? Now, what is the purpose of sanctification? 
the purpose. In other words, why sanctification? Right? What is the importance? Why sanctification? Right away, let's begin from Philippians 3, verse 20, right? Why sanctification, right? Why you need it? Okay, I can begin reading from 19. It says, I begin 18. It says, For I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. You see right there. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Do you understand why sanctification? But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, jurisdiction, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. So, right there, number one. Why sanctification? That's number one. Sanctification is very, very critical, very important in your ministry as a doctrine, in your conversation with the church, in your work as you serve the Lord at the altar, in your ministration. Why? Because... The church you are pastoring, you yourself, and the church you are pastoring does not belong to this earth. Does not. So therefore, you need sanctification. They need to be sanctified that they may go and enter, belong, into their father's glorious kingdom where they belong. Their citizenship is in that kingdom. Meaning, you are not of the earth. Are we together? For that reason, it's important to be sanctified. Because you don't belong to the earth. Your citizenship belongs to the eternal glorious kingdom of heaven. That's why sanctification is key. Because those who are not sanctified will not enter heaven. Can it get clearer than that? This is now clear. Please, make sure that you are sanctified. As we are going to see who sanctifies and what sanctifies. But make sure you are sanctified in your Christian life. That you may get to enter the glorious eternal kingdom of God. Are we together? Number two, the reason sanctification is important, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. I'm reading verses 1 to 5, for example. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Verse 3, which is our main interest here, it says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill will be moored and lowered down. And rough places shall be made level. The rugged plains, places made a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it all together. For the mouth of the Lord, he has spoken. Number two, the importance of sanctification is that one. Because he's saying that the glorious eternal kingdom of God is coming. Is coming. Therefore, sanctification is going to be really important. It is going to be very, very important sometime now. Right? Hallelujah. He's saying the glorious eternal kingdom of God is coming and the voice that is announcing and crying out in the wilderness is already here. The forerunners are here. That means the coming of the kingdom is real. 
Do you understand? And then he's saying that therefore, I'm still on number two. The importance of sanctification number two from that Isaiah chapter 41 to 5. And he says, therefore, because that kingdom is coming and the voice is announcing prepare the way. Therefore, there is the preparing of the way. And that process that prepares your hearts, prepares the way for the glorious eternal kingdom of Yahweh is called sanctification. Are we together? Can it get any clearer? This is it. Oh yes. He's saying the process that prepares that way in your heart. In other words, he's saying the finer details, the mechanism, the, the, the doing, the working, is that when you meet a mountain in that heart, raising itself above Jesus, mow it down. And when you meet a valley, those depressions of sexual sin that are making potholes, please feel it and smoothen the rough places and begin to draw the line. The king is coming to pass here. And if he finds no way prepared, he will not pass there. Because the forerunners are here already to instruct him on where to pass. The forerunners are already here to instruct him on where to pass. Where no way has been prepared, it will not pass. Hallelujah. He's saying, the process that prepares that way for the glorious coming kingdom of God, the name of that process is sanctification. Aye. So the value and the importance of sanctification cannot be sung, cannot be searched in the books. You cannot say, I want to go search it and find it. It's obvious like this. It's as clear as daytime, daylight. The Lord is feeding the sheep and sharpening the elect. He's polishing the church. So you understand. Hallelujah. Sanctification. The value, the importance of sanctification. Number three. Revelation chapter 16 verse 15. We are still on why sanctification. The purpose of sanctification. The importance of sanctification. That's the third reason. 16.15 it says, Look, I come like a thief. And blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. And be shamefully exposed. And be shamefully exposed. The importance of sanctification. Is that there are some people that have received Jesus. And they have gone through much. And a lot of assault from the enemy. Resistance. There are some people who have received Christ. And in the process of their salvation. They have gone through much. They have been through much. You go through much. Resistance and wars and fights. Assaults. And he's saying it would be a pity. For them to be put to shame on that day. In other words he's saying. That there is a garment. There is a garment that needs to be prepared by the church. And that is the importance of sanctification. The significance of sanctification, the gravity of sanctification is that there is a garment and there is a group of people that we don't want to see them ashamed on that day. And he's saying, I would hate to see them put to shame on that day. So let us handle sanctification. That is the gravity of sanctification. That a garment has to be prepared so that nobody be put to shame. Why? Because he's saying they will be shamefully exposed. Meaning, those who enter heaven. He says, blessed are those who keep their garments on that they may not be put to shame, right? Meaning, they are going to heaven and the wedding supper of the Lamb is in inside heaven. And from Central Park, you learned one thing. If there's anything you took home, is that the people in hell will somehow conversation they will have an understanding of what you are busy doing in heaven. And that the people in heaven will also have a conversation. Wow, is it true so and so did not make it? Huh? 
He's saying the wedding supper of the Lamb takes place in inside heaven. And he's saying the rewarding of the great, good, and faithful servant takes place in heaven. And then he's saying that the judgment, the judging of those that sinned openly in KU, eh? in University of Nairobi, in Sao Paulo, those that were doing gay parade in Sao Paulo, openly, he says, their judgment will be open and public. Do you understand the importance of sanctification? Oh, yes. Now, there are some people that have been standing with Jesus, shepherding, pastoring church, standing with the Lord. I would hate to see those people put to shame, says the Lord. There are some people sitting here. The Lord's eyes are right now on them. The Lord says, I hate to see them put to shame. So therefore, let us handle sanctification. Hallelujah. They have stood with the Lord. Because he's saying, the rewarding will be in heaven, meaning they, are, they have made it. Say, blessed are those, blessed. Blessed. If you read even the book of Revelation 19, verse 9 down, say, blessed are those who are invited into the wedding feast. Because the feast takes place where? Inside heaven. Hallelujah. So it's important to understand sanctification and go preach it. So, another reason. That was our number three. Number four is Revelation 19 verses 6 to verse 9. Why sanctification is important, right? He says the following. Verses 6 to 9 I can read. He says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, saying, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the day of the wedding of the Lamb of God has arrived and his bride has made herself ready. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Sanctification. That there is a day coming of this tremendous celebration, historic celebration. And there is a garment I'm about to read. But he's talking about the fact that you are preparedness as a bride, your readiness has so much to do with the joy on the face of a king I know called the Messiah Christ Jesus of Nazareth. That if you don't prepare, sadness, the opposite. So sanctification is key. That the Messiah may faulu, may succeed on that day after doing what he did on the cross for you, right? Why? Wouldn't you want him to succeed? So sanctification is very key. And he reads on to say, verse 8, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, God's holy people. Look at that. Meaning, in the process of preparing, in this number 4, which we are dealing with, he's saying, there is a garment. And he's saying, that is the garment of righteousness. And you cannot achieve righteousness. You cannot achieve it, except you go through the process of sanctification. Have you seen the importance of that process? Then he says, the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited into the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of Yahweh. Aye. Meaning, the blessedness of you, the church, when he says the church is blessed, is that that church go through sanctification. That on that day, she may enter, otherwise she is not blessed. Because he says, why own the whole world? 
and then lose your soul into hell. So this is the true definition of blessedness. That the church may be prepared through sanctification. That when that day comes, this may be said about her. This is all about her. That blessed are they who are invited into the wedding supper. Wedding feast of the Lamb of God. My Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Aye. Hallelujah. Sanctification. Central. Key. Foundation. Without which no salvation. You are beginning to understand that wow. Without that process then we have no salvation. Right? He says. Isaiah 61 verse 10. The importance of sanctification. Isaiah 61 verse 10. He says the following about the salvation you behold. When Isaiah saw the salvation coming. He says the following. About that salvation. He says verse 10. He says. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me. With the garment of salvation. And he says. And arrayed me in the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. I, but when you are prepared in that garment. Then he says now you are ready. For the kingdom. Meaning. Saved. You have been saved. Do you know the meaning of saved? Delivered. And that deliverance is not complete until you enter where? The eternal glorious kingdom of God. Did you hear me? And so he's saying that the process that earns you that entry into the eternal glorious, in fact, garment, that garment of salvation, and then that now robes you, robe, as, as in robe, garbs you, dresses you in the righteousness of the Lord, as he says in Isaiah 61 verse 10. That process is called sanctification. So that process is a must in the life of the believer. So you see that now. Very powerful that sanctification is actually the foundation of salvation. That means we have to know about it. Right? Hallelujah. If there's anything that is so key, I'm beginning to realize this, this, is, this is salvation now. This is the one that is salvation. But you're beginning to understand that this is what defines salvation, right? Because you did not come into it as a joke. You wanted to enter. Enter. The book of Matthew chapter 5. The importance of sanctification. Why is sanctification so important? Matthew chapter 5. He says verse 3 on. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of Yahweh. The kingdom of God. So he's telling you. That. The kingdom of God you want to go to has standards. Has a standard. He's saying, the poor in spirit. Can I read another one? Verse 8. Verse 8 he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God face to face. Aye. So he's now talking about the poor in spirit, the purity in heart, the pure at heart. Let's see verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of Yahweh. He is busy laying the standards of the kingdom, the benchmarks of the kingdom, the yardstick for the kingdom. And he's saying to you that the process that allows you, facilitates you to achieve those standards of the kingdom is called sanctification. I to achieve the poor, to be poor in heart, the purity of heart, righteousness. That process is called sanctification. So for sure, really, you need sanctification. Wow. 
to be poor in heart, to have the purity of heart, and to be righteous, to behold the righteousness of God. He says, the process, and there are many other things he says there, that process he called sanctification. Facilitating you to achieve it. Are we together or not? Another reason why you need sanctification, Isaiah 66 verses 1 to 3, he says the following, this is what the Lord of hosts says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord of hosts. These are the ones I look on with favor. In other words, the other versions say, this is he, these are the ones whom I esteem. If I were you, I'd say esteem. I write esteem. And then the next one, look to with favor, this version here. Another one says, respect, honor, love. These are the ones I esteem, I respect, I honor, I love, I favor. Who doesn't want to be in that bracket? And he said, those who are humble in heart and contrite in spirit, then he begins to say what they are. Now, that is where your sanctification comes in. That for you to be in that bracket, there is some work, sanctification need to achieve in you. These are the ones I esteem, I respect, I honor. I love, I favor the ones who are humble, who are trembling at my word. Can I get there? That is what sanctification achieves in you. These are the ones he loves. The group you want to be in, right? He loves them, he favors them, he honors them, he esteems them, and he blesses them. He is, in other words, fond of them. And then he says, they are the ones who do the following that sanctification achieves. They do the following. He says, where is my resting place? Has not my hand made all, all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. I esteem, I favor, I love, I honor, I respect. Those who are number one, humble, contrite in spirit, humble in heart, contrite in spirit, and they tremble at my word. Those three the virtues that God is celebrating there, humble, contrite, and tremble at his word, are achieved by sanctification. Hey, that you need this to enter. That to be humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at his word, that state is achieved by the works of sanctification. So therefore you want this. Can we look at the unsanctified state? Down there, he talks about those he hates. In other words, the un unsanctified state. The unsanctified soul. The people that have not passed through, have not yet been processed through the process of sanctification. He says the following about it. Verse 3. But whoever sacrifices a bull and is like one who kills, does a homicide, kills a human being, a murder, and whoever offers a lamb and is like one who does the abomination of breaking the dog's neck, breaking the neck of a dog, and whoever gives grain offering and is like one who presents the pig's blood, get blood from the pig and pours on the altar. And whoever burns memorial incense and is like one who is busy worshipping the Hindu wood and stone, idol gods. They have chosen their ways and they delight in their abominations. Did you see the unsanctified state? Is there anybody who will say in your churches anymore that they don't want sanctification? 
just to look at the bracket that is not sanctified and what the Lord resents speaks about them. The hatred. I, he called this abomination. Then you're like, no, I'd rather be sanctified. I choose sanctification. It has now turned out to be the, the true salvation. Without it, you are done. If you are not sanctified. So you'd rather be sanctified that you may be having a journey towards the eternal glorious kingdom of God. Because the owner of heaven, the same one that takes people to heaven, is the same one that takes people to hell. The owner of heaven, where you want to go, is already talking like this about the unsanctified state. Then who are you to just say, no, I will just, he will understand. I know. Now you are seeing the unsanctified state is an abomination. Is idolatry. Is hating God. You literally hate God. You hate him. You don't like God. And God also now does not like you because you are condescending him. Hallelujah. The book of Revelation chapter 4. Why do you need to be sanctified? I am still focusing on just one part out of more than 10 parts. Just this one part. Why do you need sanctification? What is the importance? What is the purpose in the life of a believer? A Christian, meaning Christ follower. What is the, wh- why is it important to that person, to the Christian? Wh- what is the importance? What is the purpose? For what? In other words, why? Why sanctification? Right? So can we finish it? Revelation chapter 4. He says, Revelation chapter 4. I'm reading from verse 1 to 11. I may not read there, right? After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. If that is the simulation, the emulation of the rapture of the church, then you need sanctification because one good day, heaven is going to open and God is going to say, Come up here. Then you need it. Otherwise you remain. And if that be the case, then he's announcing here that there is a day when the voice will say from the heaven standing open that come up here. After Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, preparing the church. Then now, you hear him talking at the threshold, come up here, and then he begins to talk about events inside heaven. And what is coming later. Of course, with once here and there, Revelation 16, Revelation 19, still on preparedness, but within the context of the cascade of the events. Hallelujah. If the Bible is saying that this day is coming, when you finally say, my good and wonderful, beautiful church, please come up here. You want to make sure that you have been thoroughly sanctified that even those what? Ears what are these for? Hearing the trumpet and the command. Hearing God. That you too may be able to hear that command and go. Those who are not sanctified cannot hear. Because that voice will be a spiritual voice. Wewe. You need a spiritual ear. And that ear must have been sanctified. I'm building the case for sanctification. Laying down the case for sanctification. Hallelujah. Sanctification. And then he says the following. 
So, you can read on and on because it says, verse 2, At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on the throne in heaven. Again, with someone sitting on it and the one who sat there had the appearance of a jasper like ruby and a rainbow that shone like emerald and circled him. Surrounding him were 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting on them. They were dressed in wine, finest linen, bright and clean, and had the crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And if that is what happens there, who would not want to prepare first? It is as though he's repeating the events of Mount Sinai. The thunder, peals of lightning and thunder, fire, smoke. What? Then he's saying, Mark you. It's the same God. Then wouldn't you want to prepare thoroughly? If you are going to stand before that majesty, emerald, rainbow, crystal like glass, if I read forward, it will be like crystal glass, shining the glory there, the power, the majesty that he's describing. He's describing the unapproachable majesty of God. Peals of thunder, lightning, gurumos already, pow, pow, things, huh? Wouldn't you want to prepare well so your stomach may be strong? You may need to prepare well if this is the throne before which you are appearing. And therefore the process that prepares you, that is so key, is called sanctification of the soul. Hallelujah. This is mighty. The power of sanctification, the value of sanctification, the virtue that is sanctification, the importance of sanctification, the purpose of sanctification. The role of sanctification. He's saying, look at what he says further on. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne were seven lamps that were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass as clear as crystal. At the center of the throne were four living creatures and they were they were covered with eyes in front and back. Verse 7. The first living creature is like a lion. The second is like an ox. The third has the face of a man. And the fourth is like an eagle. I have met each one of these specific ones before the throne of God. Each one. Each one of them have met and conversationed. And I cannot describe to you. I have never been allowed to describe to you these creatures. What they, you will be. Some of you cannot handle. Don't you think you need a thorough preparation through a beautiful processing called sanctification to be ready for this? Excuse me. Serious sanctification. You said not just sanctification. You need some serious sanctification. Serious sanctification. And it says about these creatures, the four living creatures, like an ox, a face of man, and the fourth one, like a flying eagle. Then it says, each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around even under the wings talking about their intelligence talking about their intelligence they are looking with the eyes of God meaning they see everything everywhere that is the meaning of them covered with totally eyes eyes everywhere, under the wings everywhere so at the back they see, in front they see down they see, up they see so they are seeing as God sees with eyes talking about their sight, their intelligence, how intelligent they are, how they see so far, even things not yet happened. The four living creatures. Then he moves on to say, 
even under their wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, 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 three times holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If God is that much three times holy, don't you think you need to prepare? The value, the importance of sanctification. The importance of sanctification, right? And uh, we saw already from the book of uh, Revelation chapter 4, 1 to 11, that if that is the throne before which you are going to appear, then it's absolutely very important that you prepare. And that process that prepares you is called sanctification. So then it becomes very important in your Christian salvation. Isn't it? It's very, very important in your Christian salvation, the process of sanctification. Hallelujah. And that's what we've been seeing all through. Sanctification is very important, right? There is rumbling going on at that throne. Flashes of lightning. Wouldn't you need to prepare? You have to prepare before that throne, absolutely. And another reason for preparing again is now the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. Why sanctification is important. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm just beginning by verse 1 alone. Verse 1 is a reason on its own. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his garment and his robe filled the temple. He's saying, just from verse 1 alone is a reason for you to demand sanctification. Because he's saying in verse 1 that the Lord is so highly exalted, so high up there, far away from the moral and evil and wicked and sinful decay of the earth. He's saying, if he's that much highly exalted, and that is the place I need to go to, then there are for blessed people. It is true I need sanctification. I would have to prepare well because he is high and exalted, very high up there. And he's so high that I really would have to prepare well to get there. And if there is a process that prepares you to get there, and that process is called sanctification, then surely that process, you need it. Because he said, so high and exalted. What does he mean by that? Set apart. That high and exalted is used to emphasize, illustrate, demonstrate that he is really separated from the moral and wicked decay of the earth. He is separated from that. If they want to enter there, they would have to change. You like it or not? They would have to repent and undergo sanctification, right? Because he's saying he's high and exalted, meaning he's really very separated from the moral decay of the earth. And if I'm living here, I really need to prepare. And that process is called what? Sanctification. Hallelujah. And he's saying, verse 1 alone is one reason why you need sanctification. Why sanctification is so important. Hallelujah. Sanctification is the name of the process. He's saying, he is totally separated from the earth. So therefore, if he's separated from the life and the goings on here, and this wicked evil and filth, 
of this earth that you're mixing with. Siji, a bishop has fallen with a woman. Siji is touching women. Siji is doing what? If he is really separated from the sickness of sin that's going on on this earth, then for those who want to enter, you surely must prepare. And prepare well. And that process that prepares you well is called sanctification of the soul. Hallelujah. He's saying verse 1 alone, the fact that he's highly exalted, high and exalted, meaning totally separated from the earth. You need sanctification. And then, have you ever wondered that the train of his garment is still filling the earth? You know, the earth is the worship central. The worship center of the Lord is the earth. He created the earth for worship. The worship center of the Lord is the earth. The earth is the worship center of Jehovah. For you might say, no, only the church of that's you. He created everything, everybody to worship him. So if you hear that the train of his garment is reaching down the earth, then you can tell that the Lord, as much as he's highly exalted and separated from the earth, but he can never stop his connection with the earth. He can never cut it. Because on that day when he does cut it, Everybody will not wake up. It will be 7 billion dead bodies rotting on the earth. Even the air you breathe is God. No, no, no. Leave the air alone. Even waking up. Who wakes you up? It is the Lord that normally wakes you up. Those that are not woken up are not here today. They are buried. Hi! Separated. Highly exalted. Set apart totally from the earth. However, he's saying that he is still connected to the earth because the crops that you eat, they need his rain. Whose rain do your crops drink? The Lord's rain. And they need your sunshine for the leaf to pick the chlorophyll and build a cob of maize, a cluster of banana, and a watt of cabbage. So you tell me when you say that you want just to be independent in the atheist society of Kenya. But you don't believe in God because you have found a way at Kujimudu. Even the atheists need to be woken up every morning. That he may have to breathe. And God's air, by the way. And walk to work. But highly exalted. So therefore, that means you need sanctification. Can I move on? Verse 2 is another reason you need sanctification. Look at what he says, verse 2, Isaiah chapter 6. In verse 2 he says, Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet. And with two wings they were flying. He's saying, because of that verse 2 alone, you need sanctification. Why? Because he's saying, there is seraphim that are the angels of glory. The angels that can stand the glory, the cloud of God, the presence of God. Hallelujah. That can stand the presence of God. The cloud of God. The holy cloud, the holiness, the unapproachable holiness of God. Those angels, he says, they cover their feet. Their feet, let me tell you something about feet. Their feet are the least clean and the least important part of an animal. 
if somebody slaughters chicken and cooks it well, and he starts to serve, serve, he reaches you, he, said, he gives you two legs, the ones of stepping down, he gives you to say, I'm coming back to you with soup. Just hold on there, I'll be trickling back to you. You weep, you weep the whole journey. You always weep forever. What have I done? The feet are the least valuable part. So it is also with human beings and animals and, and even the angels here. They cover their feet, not even worthy to be seen by God. Supposed to be unclean part, walking, whatever. In terms of the world standards. They cover, they would not want God to even look at their feet. The least important part. They are unclean. I'm talking about the glorious angels of God. The highest angels of heaven. They cover their feet. I said number two is a reason on its own why you need sanctification. They cover their feet. That the Lord cannot see the feet. They cover their faces. They are glorious faces. If you read the book of Acts chapter 6, 12, that when Stephen had been stoned, then his face became like that of angels. Meaning, the Lord deposited his glory there and the face glowed. Only the angels have glorious feet, glorious faces, and so forth. So his face was like that of angels. But he's saying, even those glorious faces, they cover. Meaning, not worthy. Look, to express their unworthiness before the unapproachable glory of God. Unapproachable glory. That when it comes to standing before the unapproachable glory of God, unapproachable holiness, the non-approachable glory of God, then the glorious angels, the glorious feet, and glorious faces they cover. How much more do you need to prepare to present yourself before such a God? You a mere mortal human, sinful one. How much more do you need sanctification then? Hallelujah. The glorious angels of God, they cover their glorious feet. They cover their glorious faces as an illustration of their humility before the throne of God. Say, I cannot approach the throne. I can't see the glory with my eyes. How much more you? Don't you think then you need preparation proper? Properly. 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 Don't you think then you need this process that prepares called sanctification? It's absolute now. Where we have reached now is absolute. This process is a must now. Eh? Sanctification. Presenting the case for sanctification. Why the church needs sanctification? Why it is central in the Christian life, foundation of salvation, without which there is no salvation. And he's saying, in the matters you see the throne where, where you are going to appear, in the manner of demeanor of the angels, let me just prepare properly. Hallelujah. Lest I don't enter. Did you see that now? The importance of sanctification. Wow. How powerful. Verse 3 is another reason on its own. Verse 3 of Isaiah 6 says, And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, three times holy is the Lord Almighty, the God of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. Just the manner of the holiness, the free time holiness that is being announced at that throne tells you, even me, I need that three times sanctification. Hallelujah. I need that three times sanctification so I can appear before the three times holiness of God. I need threefold sanctification to be able to stand before the three times holiness of God. That's another reason on its own accord. You would have gone through life without ever knowing that, hey, there is a process and I want to go to the process. The holiness of God alone calls for proper sanctification. Brings value to sanctification. Underscores gravity of sanctification. The holiness of God. Three time holiness. Can you imagine? Holy, holy, holy. Say for that, out of just rational and logical thinking. Just rational and logical. If that holiness is threefold, then I think I need to prepare properly. If there is a sanctification, then I want it threefold. I don't want to take chances, right? That's verse 3 alone. Verse 4. Look at what he says. And at the sound of their voices, the doors and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Can you imagine that? Even to stand within that earthquake in heaven. Don't you need to prepare? And then he says, verse 5, Woe unto me, I cried out, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I have lived among a people of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes are beheld. They have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Most High. I, just based on that alone, that your eyes are going to see the Lord of hosts face to face. Don't you think you need sanctification? He said, I need it. You need sanctification. Everybody does. Because he's saying, just standing there and looking at the holy presence of God, and he said, no, I am finished. Don't you think you need to be prepared? And then what comes next, which is actually the simulation of the process, which is the genesis of this conversation, the beginning of it all, what comes next? That you need sanctification. You need to be prepared. Oh yes, you do. If that be the gravity, if that be the gravity of appearing before God, then everybody needs to prepare well. You don't want to take chances, go to hell. No, you don't want to. He says, verse 5, it goes on very powerful up to 11. Each of them is a reason for you to have sanctification, work through your soul, work through your salvation, right? Each one of them. He says, verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with a tongue from the altar. Verse 7, he says, With it he touched my mouth and said, See, look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and you have sin atoned for. And he said, Therefore, because the seraphim go to the altar in front of the throne, and they Pick a live coal, burning coal. And they come and they look for somebody and they touch your mouth with a live burning coal. You say, Hapana, 
Apana. Therefore, I need sanctification. Why? Because that process in itself is the sanctification we are talking about. That process is actually called sanctification. The process of taking burning coal to someone who is ruined. He says, I am done. I am undone. I am finished. Dead meat. The reason I'm dead meat is that I have looked at the Lord with my mortal, filthy eyes. Sinful eyes that have seen wickedness. And my lips are dirty because out of the abundance of the heart flows. So it speaks about how my heart is not clean. And he's saying that when he sees the seraphim saying holy, holy, they are preaching a gospel of holiness. They are preaching a doctrine of repentance because they are coming with call to purge sin. To purge sin from this sin for Isaiah. Essentially, that fire purges the heart of Isaiah. And Isaiah says, no, I am finished. I need sanctification. Why? Because out of the abundance of the hearts, the holy hearts of the seraphim, they are crying the holiness of God. They are celebrating it and singing it and preaching it. Out of the abundance of the holiness of their hearts. How about me who is not holy? Then he said, no, I'm a man of unclean lips. Meaning my heart, my heart is unclean. What I'm spewing out is a reflection of the abundance of the heart. If this seraphim can sing holiness, I need purging. And that's why he takes the hot call, life call. He come, he touch that mouth, and he touch that mouth. And then after that, you see things happening. Isaiah can now hear God from his side talking. The one who said he's ruined and he's dead meat. Eh? He's finished. Now he can hear God inside the inner courts of God talking. Hey, he can now hear the voice of God, right? And then the other thing you see, he's also now standing and speaking back to God. That here am I, Lord, send me now. Hey, he's also now willing to be sent. Meaning, how can you preach the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of sanctification, the gospel of purging, unless you have experienced the fire of purging? That only those who have experienced the purging, the fire of purification, who have experienced that the power of the doctrine of repentance and holiness, only they now can carry that gospel. That's what he's saying here. Because he say, Lord, here am I. Send I. Send me now. When he has tasted the purging, now he can go to the earth to preach the gospel of purging of sins. That you can never preach the gospel of purging of sin. The gospel of repentance and holiness. Except that you too, you have you have tasted it. And it has transformed you. So you are talking about what you know. Zaya is dead meat. He's saying, I am finished. I am ruined. I'm really undone. Today I'm gone. I'm dead meat. I'm dead. Because I have stood before the Lord of hosts. The king himself. The Lord Most High, the Lord Almighty Himself, Jehovah Yahweh Himself. And yet with my filthy eyes, I have seen the King. I am now finished. That alone should cause you to say, Apana, for me, I need to prepare properly. I must. 
If I don't, I will be dead meat. I will be finished. It's the unapproachable glory of God, which is not possible to approach. And then, the next reason is the way the seraphim flies. Looks at Isaiah's condition. Did you know who Isaiah is? Isaiah is the mighty prophet of God, right? He's the prophet of the Lord. So he's no ordinary man, right? God speaks with him. But if you look at the state of unworthiness that happens to him, the deadness, the way he dies, when he just sees the throne, he is finished. When you look at that, then you say, Abana, for me, let me first go and prepare properly. If Isaiah can cry like that, but if you look at the process that the seraphim pass Isaiah through to now purge him, in other words, sanctify him, then you understand that just a moment. I am a carrier of the gospel. I'm not going to carry that gospel except that I've been purged so I can preach to people what I know. He says, only when you are passed through the purging, the sanctification of God, the purification, the doctrine of sanctification is essentially the doctrine of setting apart from sin, repentance. That means you cannot preach it unless you have passed through it. Otherwise, you have an atheist preaching to people who are genuinely hungry for God. They want to be born again. But an atheist is walking around there preaching to them. He ain't tasted yet the fire of God from the burning coal. He touched the mouth and purged him. And from that point on, what happens? Isaiah now hears the throne. If you read further, he now can hear the voice of God. And I talked about the sanctification of the ears that you may hear the trumpet. And the next thing, Isaiah is speaking back to the Lord. Standing now. He's able to stand before the throne. He's able. You see that? Hallelujah. And he's saying that the burning, the bringing of burning coal and set his lips ablaze. But anyway, you don't hear the Bible say, look, this has burnt your lips. No. It's not burning of the lips of Isaiah. It's just the touching of the lips of Isaiah was enough to purge his heart, to purge his life, to purge the vessel. So he's now a carrier. Touching the lips. He says, that is the foundation. That is the principle. The principle law governing sanctification is that one. The principle law. That Isaiah was going through this kind of sanctification because of the state, the state he was in. And this is a prophet of God. How much more the church needs sanctification? This kind of doctrine. He was receiving the doctrine of repentance and the pardoning of sins. And he said, how can you preach the pardoning of sin and the turning away from it unless it has purged you? You have tasted it and seen that the Lord is good. How can you preach it? It's not possible. That's why those who are falling in sexual sin, they were not born again. They were not born again. They were not. Let's just agree. They were not. Because when you go through this, the purging, oh, Isaiah is now talking to God. He's hearing and talking to God. And say, Lord, here I am. Please send me the enthusiasm. The enthusiasm, the trembling with running down there to go and tell them about this wonderful gospel of pardon. This awesome throne of God where they're supposed to go and present and appear. Hallelujah. 
the book of 1 Kings 22. Another reason. Why you need sanctification. The importance of sanctification. 1 Kings 22 verse 19. He says, Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven. The multitude of heaven standing around him on his right hand side, on his right and on his left. I, what did you think you need to prepare well to be part of that multitude? That you just want to go there with a black coat. Just a black coat, you want to stand alone there. And people are wearing white glorious garments. Don't you think you need to purge and prepare and be purified and sanctified like the angels themselves? So you can stand also there. I, I tell you, sanctification, the purification of sanctification is a must. Hallelujah. Then can I now begin to walk into the message? So, why do the seraphim behave like that? Let me just give you a summarizer for this section as I move to the message, right? The seraphim cover their feet, their faces and their feet to symbolize the unapproachable presence of the Lord Most High. The seraphim do cover their faces and their glorious, their glorious faces and their glorious feet to symbolize the unapproachable glory and presence of the Lord Most High. To underscore it, that that presence, that glory, that holiness is not approachable. It's unapproachable. Presence and the glory and the holiness of God at the throne. The Lord Most High is virtually unapproachable unless you are prepared in a certain way. Are we together? Well, I remember one time, every time, of course, he comes and speaks to me, every day, even now, if I fall asleep, I hear his voice. He will speak because he has a friend. He has two friends, right? Yeah, so you share with them everything because of the mission also. The Messiah is coming, right? So, walking, every time walking, walking normally on the right hand side, walking with these two prophets, Every time and explaining and showing and everything. One time for 32 nights. Showing me the interior of this temple where you saw the pillar. 32 consecutive. In fact, the next night, I even knew. I knew that before I sleep like this, he's going to appear. Normally, immediately, I'm just about to fall asleep. His presence has appeared. And then you hear his voice. And then normally, we would start from where we ended yesterday. Continuously. In fact, I was writing a book about the temple of the Lord. For 32 consecutive nights. So walking with him, then he says, here, there will be no praise, only worship. And here, there will be... So, lot, so much details, each of the chambers and everything. Serious walk inside the temple of God in heaven. That's why you see on the website of the radio, there is that corn, the, 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 the dome. If you look at the radio website, dot info, you see that dome, the temple of God in heaven. That's the dome that is there. And then, one time I asked him, I said, Lord, may I see who speaks with me every day? May I see who it is that speaks with me every day on a daily basis then? 
that night when he came and he was in a hurry also to come barely had I fallen asleep the presence arrived and the glory you see? so that night when he was walking and talking what he did was very simple he simply I think he did this I was demonstrating to you people who were here the other day right I think he did this he, he just walked a little bit like this so he wanted the garment to be seen a little bit of the legs, the garment, the garment, this part of the garment like this I can see. But the glory, it shone. Eh? Everything to wherever. Super glory. Hey. Don't you think you need to prepare for that kind of encounter? And so, the seraphim are covering their glorious faces and glorious feet to demonstrate the unapproachable glory and presence and holiness of the Lord Most High. Not approachable. Unapproachable. Number two. The seraphim, in so doing, illustrate the purification of God that is required through sanctification for anyone to approach God. In so doing, the seraphim are demonstrating, illustrating the purification of God through sanctification that everyone needs before they approach God. Number three, the seraphim demonstrate, in so doing they demonstrate the law and the judgment of God. The law and the judgment of God. That's what they're demonstrating. In other words, they're saying there are no jokes here. There is no joking here. There are no jokes here when it comes to approaching God. They are demonstrating the law and the judgment of God. You can say the exacting law of God. When he says holiness, he means holiness. You cannot tell the Lord, oh, you see? No, you cannot do that, right? It's not going to be possible because one, one has created the other. At one point, one will worship the other. I think so. One will kneel down and worship the other. If Kenya, if God created Kenya, then Kenya has to bow down and kneel down and confess with her tongue that Jesus is Lord. Hmm? The exacting law and judgment of God. Aye. The seraphim do so to illustrate God's demand for holiness and righteousness and purity before his throne. God's holy demands. God's righteous demands. Of righteousness. Holiness. And, and purity. Before his throne. So you tell me if you don't need purification. It is awesome. So can we then look at the principal law. That governs sanctification. The principal law. That governs sanctification. Let me now define sanctification at this point in time. Number one, sanctification means set apart from sin. Set apart from sin. Number two, purification from sin. Number three, freed, set free, freed from sin. Number four, consecrated. Are we together? Number five, separated unto the Lord. Wow. Number six, made productive. To make productive. In other words, in your unsanctified state, you are not productive to the Lord. 
I'm not sorry to tell you that. That is the pure truth to make productive now can be used. We just agreed, right? We agreed that Isaiah had to be purged and pardoned his sins through the purging for him to go and preach the gospel of purging and pardoning of sins. Hallelujah. He says, another definition, to make functional. Functional. In other words, fit for purpose. Do you know what fit for purpose is? Yes. Meaning, if this mirror or this phone was, was, bought, was made for making phone calls, when you take it and use it, it should do that. Should do that purpose for which it was created. When you take it and dial it and put a number and say, hello, praise the Lord, whichever you say, you should hear. That is called fit for purpose. The purpose for which is created. And he's telling us here, functional, that sanctification makes fit for purpose. Aye. Makes mankind now fit for purpose. In other words, he's saying the unsanctified state is utterly dysfunction. Dysfunction. When it's not sanctified, the human being, then you call that human being dysfunctional. Dysfunctional. Are we together? Dysfunctional. So, fit for purpose. So, that tells me somebody who is squandering their lives were actually made for a certain purpose. Is that not the truth that's coming through now? That there is somebody squandering their lives around and yet in the church and yet, actually, they were made for a purpose. For purpose. So, the question then becomes, are you performing the purpose for which you were made, created? If the answer be yes, then you are in a sanctified state. If the answer is no, then you are virtually, un totally unsanctified. According to the eyes of God, you are not fit for purpose. Wow. He goes on to say that a sanctification it means sainthood. Saint. Saints. You become a saint. Wow. That is unbelievable because then that is talking direct inside heaven. So it's the process that makes you saint. Sanctification also means made conducive for God's blessings made conducive for God's blessings. Which means once you are sanctified, then you are now in a state where now God can bless you. You are now conducive. The unsanctified state is unconducive for blessings. Ay, ay, ay. You people are like, then just a moment. Why did you delay it? Now I understand why my blessings have delayed. I know that. Because this is all or nothing. That means this is a key foundation to the gospel, to righteousness, to holiness, salvation, to entry, to deliverance. All these things are powerful. Set free from sin. Set apart from the world. Separated for God. These are mighty. That is the calling of the church, right? So this is sitting at the foundation of the church. Because remember, ecclesia. Ecclesia means removed from the world and now for God's purpose. 
This is it. And then he's saying here that sanctification means holiness. Holiness. And then he goes on to say that sanctification also means creating a new life. Wow. Are we moving together? Those are mighty words. Eh? Creating a new life in that university of KU. You tell them if you are born again, behold you are a new creation because a process of sanctification must pass through you to create a new life. The old is gone. You are new, totally new. Hallelujah. And then, the last one he says, sanctification means making whole, making complete. Making whole, healing it, making complete. Can we then look, because that's the definition. Can we then look at the principal law itself? The principal law that governs sanctification. Because what I've given you until now is definition. Are we together? Definition. The definition I have given. But can we now focus on the principal law that governs sanctification? We are now starting to get deep to understand it in its workings, right? He says the following, the book of Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus chapter 21, number 1 in Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21, verse 8. This is what he says. He says, Regard them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy because I, the Lord, I am holy. I who make you holy. So in the principle law that governs sanctification, the first article, the first item is this, that it is God himself that sanctifies man. Wow. It is God himself that actually sanctifies mankind. That is the first entry, the first item on the principle law, the first article on the principle law that governs sanctification. Are we together? John chapter 17. We'll go to Ephesians too, but John 17. Are you ready for this? So John chapter 17. We are now looking at the articles, the entries of the principal law governing sanctification. Are we there? John 17, 13, I'm, I'm saying, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Right? That is also powerful. He's talking about filling you, the church, filling you, the believer, with God. That also you can pick on and say, wow, is it that sanctification? But let's, let's move on first to my target, right? He moves 14 and says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world anymore than I am of the world. Again, you're already beginning to understand that once sanctified, the world has to hate you because you are not of the world anymore. I'm just giving little nuggets as I head to a main point. A main point. Just on the journey, I'm doing this. Just feeding you with little nuggets, right? About sanctification. Because now we've entered the principle law governing sanctification. Hallelujah. And he says on, 
He says, verse 15, My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Again, once sanctified, is totally separated from who? The evil one, and therefore requires protection from the evil one. Are we moving? They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I He's already now starting to give the principles that govern sanctification. The Messiah is saying, please sanctify them with the truth. And he says, your word is the truth. And he's saying the following, that there is a process he was discussing before prior of removing them from the world. Separating them from the world. And then now, he says, sanctify them with the truth. And your word is truth. You are beginning to understand a little nugget here and there how sanctification happens. But the reason I'm doing this is that I'm trying to bring to you one aspect of sanctification. That it is God himself that sanctifies his people. I'm coming to that now. He says, after that he says the following. Again he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Aye. Very powerful. You're beginning to understand the principles of sanctification. I am happy that right away from the beginning, he's already presenting an agency of sanctification. An agency. But we know that without God, there is no sanctification. But I have to make some submissions to you that will shock you. That while consecration is done by the Lord, but sanctification, you have a role too. That's what the Bible at one point says, sanctify yourselves. So, in other words, as we come to see later, in this principle law that is governing sanctification, God can never ever sanctify somebody that is not willing. You have your part. Meaning, the willingness, the openness of the heart, the availing of yourself to him is going to be key in sanctification. Those are now distinctions and differences with consecration that are slowly beginning to creep in as we handle the principal law governing sanctification. Whereby the Lord Jesus, the agency now says, I for their sake, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now he's saying there is an agency of sanctification, right? Can we move on stepwise? The next one is, uh, okay, I mentioned Ephesians, but we have so many scriptures. Second Timothy chapter 2. Are you ready? Second Timothy chapter 2 from verse 19 I read. He says, I'm looking at the principles of sanctification. In other words, the principle law governing sanctification. Second Timothy chapter 2, 19, 21, he says 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription that says, The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from sin and wickedness. Aye. The principal law 
governing sanctification. He says, God knows his own people. That his foundation is solid and it has an inscription on it. And that inscription says, the Lord knows those who are his, his people. And everyone that confesses the name of the Lord must be ready to be purged. Must turn away from sin. Must turn away from all wickedness. Must turn away from evil. So you judge, what is evil still doing in you? If you so claim the salvation of the Lord. Why hasn't sanctification worked in you? And purified you? And purged you? Must be purged. Those who are his. Wickedness out. Sin out. Evil out. Hallelujah. And he goes on to say, he goes on to say verse 20, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. And he says, some are for noble and special purposes, while others, some are for common or ignoble purposes. He said, those who have cleansed themselves, look at that, he puts it on your hands, right? Cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for noble and special purposes, made holy and useful to the master, and prepared to do any good works, holy, holy works, good, holy. Hi, principle of governing sanctification. And you can see at the center of sanctification is the purging, the purging of sin and wickedness and evil and realigning for God's purpose meaning back to fit for use fit for purpose fit for its creation functional functional now he said for noble use for good works ready for good works meaning holy because only holy is good before the Lord that in the principle law governing sanctification number one there is purging Number two, there is fit for purpose. Setting for God's purpose. Let's move on. Another principle of governing sanctification is in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.23 says the following. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is one of the main articles in the principle law governing sanctification. That everybody on the earth requires sanctification. The articles of sanctification says that everybody, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of Yahweh. Meaning everybody needs sanctification yesterday, not today. Wow. It's a must. Can we continue this principle governing sanctification? Hallelujah. And he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of the main principles governing sanctification. 1 Corinthians 15. One of the main principles. This is now the architecture, the framework under which that law was drafted. The framework under which the law, the principle law was drafted. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. He says, I declare to you, brothers, 
and sisters that flesh and blood cannot inherit the glorious kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable kingdom of God. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. Verse 53 says, For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, and I add, and the corruption with incorruptibility, Verse 54, when the perishable has clothed itself with the imperishability and the mortal with immortality and the corruption with incorruptibility, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory anymore? He's saying that is the main framework around which the law was drafted. The principal law governing sanctification. Hi. He's saying sanctification is this is coming, take this, throw out, put imperishability. Take this, throw out, put immortality. Take this, throw out, put incorruptibility. Then now they stand eternal. He's saying sanctification is about purging, removing that which goes bad from you. The perishable, that which will go bad. Removing and throwing away. And getting some eternal material to build an imperishable tower. Pillar. A pillar of imperishability. And then he's saying, going in there again, looking for anything that dies, called mortal. To pluck it out. Don't leave a little piece. Pluck it out. Uproot it from its roots. And throw it out. And replace it with an eternal pillar called immortality. Using immortal metals. Then he says, you still have to go back there and look for anything. Find something corruption. Lay your hand on it. Uproot it fully and trash it out. And replace it with some serious metals made of eternity material to build a tower of incorruptibility. He's saying, when you will have built those three pillars, then you do this. You take the salvation of the church and you place on top. And those now becomes the pillars that support the salvation of somebody that has been sanctified, purged. So it's about purging. It's about taking all that can spoil, all that is temporary, all that is earthly, and trash them out and replace them with eternal material, material that is heavenly, heavenly, heavenly. Aye. There is a building of the eternal house. He says, those pillars, once they now support imperishability, immortality, incorruptibility, they are supporting your salvation. Then he says, death has now been crushed. In other words, sin has now been finished. You have overcome sin. Now you are in the sanctified state. Wow. Oh, the technical law that governs sanctification, the technicality, the practicality, he says it is the removal of that which spoils. 
to replace with the imperishability pillars. The removal of that which dies to replace with immortality. The removal of that which is corrupt or which corrupts and replaced with incorruptibility. He says that is the main framework. In fact, you can say the blueprint of the process of sanctification. Outside that, you are talking of another process. Every law was governed, drafted around that. This is the law that governs the removal of the earthly, the worldly, the evil, the wicked, and the establishing of the eternal. Because he begins by saying, I tell you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood will not enter. Meaning, he's targeting entry. Hallelujah. Targeting entry. He says, Hebrews chapter 13. We are looking at now the principle law. Now we are entered the mechanics. Right? Okay, he says the following. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. In 11 to 13 he says, The high priest carried the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies were burned outside the camp. Verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You understand? Now you are beginning to understand the principal law governing sanctification. He is now talking about the blood. He is now drawing closer to the blood. Hallelujah. It's 11. The high priest carried the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. Verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. And he says, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking forward to a city that is to come, an everlasting city. And you can go on and on. But he's now bringing in the blood of Jesus. He's bringing in the fact that Jesus died out to sanctify the church. And so now he has brought in Jesus in the principal law governing sanctification. And then the book of Revelation 22. Revelation 22. We begin with Exodus 19 first. Exodus 19 verse 18. He says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently the principal law governing sanctification the principal law governing sanctification can never go without emphasizing the dreadfulness of God thereby renditioning your souls your minds to the fact that sanctification is a must while you think it's about the purging of sin, but remember where you're going to. And then now, the book of Psalm 104, then eventually go to Revelation. Psalm 104, verse 32. 
He who looks at the earth and he trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. The principle law governing sanctification. It requires that you understand the dreadfulness of God. That if he presents a sanctification, an avenue for sanctification, you grab it as a privilege. An undeserving mercy. Otherwise, approaching God is unbelievable. You had. That is factored into the principle law governing sanctification. And then now, Revelation 22, 1 to 5. He now draws in the final target of sanctification. The final objective. The object. Hallelujah. Revelation 22, 1 to 5. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the great city. So there is a main street. Main street of the city, right? Each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. Now you see, because time will have ended, so time is going to be calibrated according to the tree of life. So it will have a demarcation of 12 each month, 12 months. I have seen already three fruits that that tree bears. Three types of fruit that it bears. They are different fruits. But he's saying here that the ultimate of sanctification is this. That the principal law governing sanctification will not fail to mention the dreadfulness of God. Number two, will not fail to mention the target, the ultimate. Right? And he says, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see him face to face. The ultimate objective of sanctification. So within the principal law governing sanctification, they have also put in the ultimate, the target, the achievement. What you must achieve that you must finally meet God face to face. Otherwise you are not sanctified. Otherwise for what? For what? And he's talking about the golden city of God. The new Jerusalem, right? And he goes on to say here, they will see him face to face and his name will be on their foreheads. He says, there will be no nights. They will not need light, the light of a lamp. Or the light of the sun. For the Lord God Almighty will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Do you understand now the ultimate for sanctification? Sanctification will target that you see eternity. Sanctification is a process that processes you to be able to go meet your God face to face in Swahili, they say, macho kwa macho ama ana kwa ana. Ana kwa ana. Hallelujah. So, now, still within the principle law governing sanctification, before we go into the mechanics, the cascades, the mechanism, still in the principle law governing sanctification. First Thessalonians chapter 4, he says the following. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. 
that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control their bodies in a way that is holy and honorable. Not passionate lusts like pagans who do not know God that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of another, a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we have told you and warned you before. For God did not call you to impure but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone that rejects the instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives his Holy Spirit. You can go on and on, but the purpose for reading this is this. That still within the principle law of sanctification, it's like now he's giving the other side of Romans chapter 3 verse 23. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he says, however, it is God's will that all people be sanctified. Everybody on the earth. Everybody ever created. So this falls within the paradigm of God's creation. Sanctification. Hallelujah. Jesus is Lord. And then he goes on to say, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, which I'm not reading now, holy three times, in mopping up, in our concluding statement on the principle law governing sanctification, he's also saying the following, that only the Lord God and his holy angels are holy. Everybody else needs sanctification. Only the Lord and his holy angels that stand in his cloud, in his presence, are holy. Otherwise, everybody else needs sanctification. Hallelujah. So this is a must-do process. A must-do process. So he says that only the Lord and his holy angels are holy. So therefore, it looks like a must-do process. And then he goes to say, Leviticus chapter 11. Another aspect of the principle law governing sanctification. Leviticus chapter 11. The workings of sanctification. How sanctification works. Leviticus chapter 11. I'm reading 44 to 45. He says the following. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creatures that move along the ground. 45. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore be holy for I am holy. So what is that? You find that because the Lord alone is holy. When you look at the principles governing sanctification. When you look at the process. Let's put it easier. The process of sanctification. He says the Lord alone is holy. And his angels. And then he goes on to say that the Holy God calls upon his people to be holy. Therefore, that process of sanctification that was a must is actually a calling from God, a requirement. God is requiring that you be holy because he's holy. Hallelujah. And then Matthew chapter 5, 48. Same thing. That the Lord calls upon his people to be holy. 
Therefore, be perfect because I, the Lord, I am perfect. Matthew 5, 48. And then First Peter chapter 1, 15 to 16. Again, God demands that his people be consecrated, be holy. They go through this sanctification I'm talking about. He created everything. Then he brings himself to your level to make you understand. Because he can see his creation, so he does not need to survey it. But he says after he finished, then he came to look at everything. And when he looked at it, he saw that it was perfect. That means God created a perfect universe. He said there was morning, there was evening. That means he said that when God had finished creating, he came to check it. To check it. The way someone in a workshop, a workman, builds something after finishing, then check it, and now check it again. He's trying to come to your level. He's saying that's what he did with the universe when he created the universe. He now came to check it, to check it again and check and check if it's okay, to check its effectiveness, its excellence, whether it can give him glory. You know, check many things, right? Fit for purpose. Hallelujah. He came to check it himself. After creating, now he comes as though he has not created it himself and he's now checking whether, as though he can make errors, right? Whether it's really right, excellent, effective, good, perfect, fit for purpose. Suitable. He must have checked many things. If he was looking at livestock, for example, he must have checked whether are they able to find food. Is there suitable food for them also? There is so much he checked. And then he says in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 27, that he created man in the image and likeness of God. So number one, in that process of sanctification, you've seen that God created the universe perfect, a perfect universe. You can tell where I'm headed to. Number two, you see that he created a perfect human being. Perfect man. And you and I know very well that if he created a perfect man, that means was fit for purpose. And if man is fit for purpose, fit for purpose, that also means that he's worshipping correctly. That Number one, he created a perfect universe. Genesis 1, 31. Number two, he created a perfect man, mankind. Human being was perfect. Because he created him in the image and likeness of God. That was perfect. In other words, you could worship him correctly. In other words, I'm describing to you the sanctified state before the fall. The sanctified state before the fall. So he created him perfect. That is Genesis 1, 26, 27, I'm saying. Right? Before the fall. I want to start from there. Then run through sanctification. I want to begin from before the fall. The sanctified state. And then I'll come to the fall. And then see the correction by sanctification. Now. Excellent. Perfect. Look at this now. If you look at the way he created the universe and then created man, you'll find that he placed man at the very center of creation. He placed mankind, he created a perfect universe, perfect man. Created a perfect universe. We saw that in Genesis 131. 
Number two, perfect mankind, man. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Because in the image and likeness of God created he man. And then look at this now. Then he placed man at the very center of creation because you see the delegation of power to man. So he placed mankind at the very center of his creation. So what am I bringing to you? I'm bringing to you the fact that any fall in man, any fall in man that is going to create dysfunction in man is actually going to create dysfunction in the universe, all creation. That's why metals rust. That's why even this cement rust. Everything will end. Everything will die. That's why they came. Cement dies. Walls die. Soil out there dies. Metal, what have you, die. In fact, there is Revelation 10, 6, when even time will die. Hallelujah. Amen. There you go now. And so, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, to explain that perfectness with which he created mankind. Hallelujah. Chapter 4, 11 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive the glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. That is the excellence within which he created the universe and man. Excellent. Oh, yes. And then takes man and puts at the center of creation such that any dysfunction in man will make the entire creation dysfunction. Amazing. Amazing how much God invested in mankind and put everything in the creation of mankind to affect everything else. So God takes a survey, he surveys, and he looks at his creation again, number two, and he checks if anything is not right. 4.11, we now see the excellence with which he created. But why does he come to check? As we saw in Genesis 1.31, that he came to check and he saw that, wow, what he created was good. So he's operating in that form as though he were you. And yet God should have capacity to create and know it's good. At one word. If these two prophets can decree, boom, and then the cripples get up, how much more the creator himself? Hallelujah. And legs that were weak now, going there, walking and just an amazing And he says, so God takes a quick survey and looks at his creation again to check if anything is not right. And he says, he checked the following. Number one, the completeness of that creation. Can you imagine that? What an excellent creator. He checked the completeness of that creation, of what he had created. Number two, he checked their excellence. Are they able to operate excellently? Another, he checked their functionality, whether they are fit for purpose. He checked the image of God in man. After creating, is he bearing the image of God? He checked the likeness of God, of course, you can have that. Amen. He checked the suitable helper, where he removed the rib and created. He checked the woman. Can she be a suitable helper for this man, mankind? M-A-N. The dominion is surrendered to man, whether it was sufficient for him to run the earth. So when he says that the Lord checked and saw that everything was good, 
there was work like a mechanic, like a craftsman, has made something. Now he's checking, he's trying to run it, he's trying to, uh, to check it, uh, check the lights, check everything, right? He checks the suitable helper, the dominion surrender to man, and he checks whether there is suitable food for that man to survive and for his animals. God is complete, God is perfect. He checked whether that man he created would have suitable food. And the animals he gave him would also have their suitable food. Wow. And then God had a reflection. He sat back and had a reflection on all creation for a moment. And in all this checking that God was checking, he was simply checking one creation called who? Mankind. That if man will function right, all creation will function right. That's just how much God invested on mankind. God checked on man's comfort. Is he going to be comfortable in this environment? He checked on his joy and his happiness. Is he going to be happy? He considered all these things. Nobody ever has an excuse for sin. Everything was considered. Oh, I just went to the Bible. I wanted just some joy. He checked it all and provided for it. He also checked the suitability of man for glorifying God and he found that man was indeed what? Suitable to glorify his creator. Oh yes. He checked on the suitability to glorify God and he thought it was perfect. So there is no excuse for sin. Hallelujah. He says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Let me just explain to you, because I don't even want to go to the fall. I've not read it. So I can't even talk about redemption. Because I'm still in the perfect state. God has examined and found that you are perfect. His plan worked. I don't want to go to the fall yet. But the reason I bring in this to emphasize the perfectness with which he created man, such that even when redemption came, he had to bring the Messiah in that image of human man. When time came to redeem now. So we are not yet into the fall. Hallelujah. John chapter 1, verse 14, you can read that later. And first John chapter 4, verse 9. All those underscore the perfectness, the center. How he placed mankind at the center of creation. Even the redemption when he came, came in the form of man. He didn't hear that he came in the form of a mountain or another creature. As man to redeem universe. Universe. Man was for sure at the center. He was at the center of creation. Even the redemptive plan had come through him. Hallelujah. Now he says the following. That when man failed, he created a serious dysfunction into the entire of God's creation. When mankind fell, when man fell, he created a serious dysfunction across the entire creation, meaning even the universe. Even animals began to grow, right? How did he create it? Are we going to Genesis chapter 3? So Genesis chapter 3, 14 to 19, the dysfunction of the fall. How he made everything dysfunctional. So the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cast are you above all livestock and all wild animals 
you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hearts. And you crush your head and you strike with him. And to the woman he said, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will always be for your husband. And he will rule over you. So you see this thing of feminism and what have you. You see it going on. It's outside the box. Outside the paradigm. The creation is in this line, right? He said, now, she will always have a desire for her husband to submit and to be under him and to rule her. God was now cursing the woman. That's now the fall has taken place. Then he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from her, from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cast is the ground. Do you hear the ground? Cast is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. And all the days of your life, by sweat. The other version says by sweat. I'll produce thorns and thistles for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. He says that he's cursing man. He's cursing mankind. He cursed the woman in the table where you are. Now he tells man he cursed man. In a very serious way he cursed man. And when he cursed man, he said, the productive soil will now be less what? Productive. And it will produce thistles and thorns. Which will give you trouble some, and some of them are obnoxious weeds with poison. You struggle to be pulling them and get injured. But it's bad. It is bad from a state of free food. The free nature, right? Are you in? <laughs> and he says, it will be a big struggle here. It will produce stones and pieces for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from meat you were taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust, back to dust. You will return. Look at that curse. Verse 19. Death has now entered. Death has now entered. We were dealing with the sanctified state. Now we have entered the unsanctified state. So, sanctification of mankind at the fall. Genesis 3 verse 8. He says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to man, where are you? He answered, he said, Adam, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I did what? Hid myself. Why am I bringing that in? But now I want to walk slowly with the process of sanctification. After the fall. I bring that in because I want to understand one thing. That 
the sanctified form, the unsanctified and the sanctified, the sanctified state of mankind, sanctified state, sanctified form of man, we saw the excellence. Then came the form. Now the unsanctified form. Going back to the sanctified before the fall. He said, the sanctified state of mankind required the following. Man walking with God. Man walking with God. So, the presence of God in the life of man is what gave him sanctification. And that's why when he falls, and becomes unsanctified. The first thing is that sin separates him from God, so he goes and hides away from the presence of God, and that is called unsanctified. Because you see, when he falls in Genesis chapter 3, then when you go to 324, the door is shut. Who cherubim of glory, right? With flaming swords, have shut the door from the presence of God. So he is alone. So he's virtually unsanctified. So it is the presence of God walking with him that essentially defined his sanctified state, made him sanctified. Ah. The absence of God, sin separates men from God. The absence of God unsanctified now. And if you go to Genesis 5:21, all the way to the now see that the sanctified state requires the presence of God. The unsanctified state is when the presence of God is not there. And we have now seen also that sin does separate man from God. Does somebody remember? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Meaning the presence of God left immediately before sin. Sin separates everything from God. So, sanctified, walking with God, but now, falling, dysfunction separated. So then, I want to walk you now into a very sensitive territory of sanctification. How did sanctification begin? How did sanctification begin? Can we start from the book of Genesis chapter 12? I'm now entering the depth of sanctification. The depth. Genesis 12. Verses 1 to 3 sufficient already. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, from your people and your father's household, to a land I will show you. Verse 2, Genesis 12. I will make you unto a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's where I want to begin from in the process, the blueprint of God's plan for the sanctification of the child, of mankind, of the universe, of creation. Wow. He says, in this Abraham, and he talks to Abraham about the sanctification that he that he's going to bless Abraham to sanctify mankind and the universe. And he begins by saying, I'll bless you. 
I'll make a great nation come out of you. And he says, out of you now, the nation of the people will be blessed. When he wants to sanctify the earth, the universe, the sun and the moon, so they can clap and obey him and worship him. Mankind, the church. He's already talking about the seed there, the seed of Abraham. When he wants to sanctify, he's talking about a seed. Isn't that awesome? Yes. A seed that would come and be, how is Abraham without a child? God be a blessing unto the nation. He's talking about one that would come, the seed of Abraham, and now would be a blessing to all the nations. Maybe owing to the fall would bring sanctification to mankind and the universe. All suns and Jupiters and moons and planets and galaxies. Ours is called Milky Way. There's an Andromeda is next door, very big, with trillions of galaxies, some bigger than the planets. He wants to sanctify. Aye. How enormous is the Messiah? The seed of Abraham coming to sanctify mankind. He's promising Abraham that he will bless the nations. Meaning, the blessing of the Lord unto the nations is the sanctification of God unto the nations. And then, from Genesis 12, we move to Genesis 14. Then he appears. Hallelujah. Verse 17, he appears. He appeared. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedalomer and the kings alike with him, the king of Sodom came to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine to sanctify the lineage you would come from. Yeah. The pathway through which mankind universe will be sanctified. Ay, ay, ay. Sing sanctification of all nations. Because they all will be blessed. And at one point, say, like the stars, Komala stress, like the stars, the stars, those are the ones, the teachers of righteousness. He's talking about those that enter heaven. When he's promising Abraham. So if he's saying that all nations will be the father of nations, father of faith, then he's talking about those that will enter. So Genesis 12, promising sanctification as the blessing to the nations. That comes through him, meaning the seed of Abraham, the Messiah. Genesis 14, he arrives with the bread of sanctification and the blood. The bread and the wine. Now he has come to sanctify. Now the process of sanctification is going to begin to roll up. Melchizedek has arrived. Now, do you understand why Melchizedek appears? Yes. First of all, to sanctify the lineage through which you would come, but he essentially brought the new covenant. The covenant of sanctification. The covenant of the grace. The new covenant of the blood and the cross. At Calvary. He brought it right there. And he said, Genesis 12, he promises he is coming. Genesis 14, all of a sudden from nowhere, he appears in the Old Testament with the new covenant. Priest of God most high. Immediately after that, look at what happens. Immediately after that encounter with Abraham, we go to Genesis 22. He says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, That your son, the only one whom you love, his name is Isaac. The one whom you love, his name is Isaac. 
and go to the region of the Moria, Mount Moria, and sacrifice it there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. And the next day Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough of the wool for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place at a distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy we go over there to worship. We will worship and then we will come back. Did you see we? Yes. Did somebody see we? Yes. Did you say I? You will come back. I. Imagine it amounts to human sacrifice. He said, yes. We will go worship yes. and we, we do. We will come back to you. Yes. Yes. Does this guy know something we don't know? He seems to be aware of something we don't know, right? Yes. No. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. Remember, all this is happening where? On Mount Moriah. The mountain of the Lord, right? Even Solomon comes dead and built the temple where? On Mount Moriah. Please. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke up and said, to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here. Isaac said, But where is the lamb? If I were you, I'd like the lamb. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That is a very plausible question. And he said, Yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here. Isaac said, But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the land for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. They still did not separate. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. You can imagine the son is standing by. Arranged the wood on it. He bound him, he bound his son Isaac, meaning legs and hands and legs, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him, please. So he said, do not do anything to him. God was so clear. Now I know that you fear God. Because you are not withheld from me, your son. Your only son, whom you do what? Whom you love. Abraham looked up. And there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horn. He went over. He took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, 
that because you have done such a thing, this thing, and you have not withheld your son, your only son whom you love, from me, I will surely bless you, he repeats now, bless you, and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as the sun of the seashores. That's where I want to operate from. That's where I want to start from, on this process of sanctification. So now, Abraham is bringing the son to slaughter, right? <coughs> Verse 8. The son asked, he said, God himself will not send anyone. God himself will provide the land for the sacrifice. And the word land. When he arrives here, and he's supposed to sacrifice, look, he looks up. The Lord called him and said, don't touch him. Bound him. Bound him, right? But he looks up, and he sees a ram, not a lamb. A ram. Entangled with his horns inside a thicket. Caught up, looking like this. Quiet. Caught up by its horns inside the thorny thicket. Thorny. They intertwine, even the root down there, by the way. But that when you enter, you can come out of difficult. So the horns are locked in there. It's caught up from that. He brought his son, he has laid on the altar. God speaks from heaven, don't touch him. When he looks up, have you ever wondered he looked up? And then he saw a ram entangled, caught up inside the thicket by its horn. Cannot come out. So he went. But first of all, why ram not lamb? Why ram not lamb? Because John chapter 129 is what it says. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John chapter 8, 58. Verily, verily, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. What did Abraham seek on his way to this mountain? Why did he give the prophecy, number one, say, we will come back? Why did Abraham say, you wait here, as we go up there with the boy, we will worship and we will come back? What did Abraham see? Why did Abraham exude that confidence that they are coming back? If you go to the book of Hebrews, he says, I think verse 11 somewhere, he says that even Abraham saw that the Lord he worshipped had power to resurrect. What did Abraham see? And then Jesus himself said, on that day he saw my day and he was glad. Why did he give the prophecy that God himself will give, will produce, himself will give, will provide the lamb, lamb? L A M B, and why the ram is produced? Because Abraham had already seen the crucifixion of the Messiah. So Abraham saw he saw the crucifixion of Jesus, and he saw that the Father had resurrected Jesus. Abraham, he saw the day Jesus was crucified. 
and the Lord had to produce a ram because the lamb was coming. Otherwise, that prophecy so would have been fulfilled right there. It should be over there. Oh, you must catch me on this. You have got it finished right there. The name of God has Abraham. Abraham saw the crucifixion of the Messiah before he left for Moria. And Abraham saw that the Messiah was resurrected by the Lord. And the Lord had to produce a ram. But I want to handle one thing here. This ram talks about the lamp that would be produced. The lamp that would be slaughtered actually. But look at this now. Why is the ram locked in the thicket that the Messiah Melchizedek when he came carrying the bread and the wine. This is what he was saying. That look I am already locked and captured. I'm already caught in the thicket. I'm already caught in the thicket. Meaning, because they held the horns, right? Meaning, the thistles and the thorns have already struck my head. They have already designed for me a crown of thorns and I'm caught up in it. I am already caught up. I've been arrested. Already, I've already been arrested by the judgment of God. I am already caught up in the curse, the thistles. The curse of God has already arrested me. I'm ready for slaughter. And when I say that Isaac did not complain you now, and yet now came another lamb, a lamb, without saying one word. He untied and went and slaughtered. That the Messiah, before his captors and his assassins, Genesis 11, the law and the judgment of God have already captured him. Genesis 11, he slaughtered an animal and he poured blood. Then he covered the nakedness of man. Genesis 11, where was given from? On this sanctification. The root to sanctification. And you saw the prophecy of Abraham, right? So now we go to Isaiah 53, verse 7, right? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. I say, Isaac did not say what word word. to symbolize. He got to bring his own land. But he brought a ram because otherwise the prophecy would have been fulfilled right there. And yet there is a whole cascade is supposed to come, the incarnation and everything, right? Through Bethlehem until he comes all the way to the cross, Bethsemane. So now, he's caught up. So the prophecy of Abraham, so there are so many things we need to put into account here, right? The prophecy of Abraham we've seen. Verse 8. Caught up in the thicket. Genesis 22, 13. Zechariah 13, 6. Are you together? He says this. If someone asks, what are these wounds on your body? They will answer, these wounds I was given at the house of my friends. The horn is stuck in When he came with bread and wine, he was already saying, I am stuck. I have been caught, I have been arrested by the judgment of God. He knew that already the dreadful terror of the wrath of God has consumed him. 
when he presented the bread and the wine. His horn already stuck and entangled, arrested by the thing. The curse, the curse of man is already upon him. He says, so the horn are stuck where? Can I read now? Yes. He says, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is the tutorial and called together the whole company of soldiers. So first of all, they finally came and arrested him. That thing has made me with forever until today. Can you imagine when they finally got him, the soldiers got him and they went with him. That moment has struck me. I know the Lord has shown me the cross, how he suffered in the cross. The Lord has taken me down recently also again, even before, how he went down. Somehow the two have a lot of more information than you do about everything, even down there. Even the leopard that came this way, and the two, one was here, one was here, of the two prophets, we thought the leopard would come to attack, but the leopard moved away. The leopard, down there now. And then the glory that struck like that, and then he went up with the glory. You see that, at his resurrection, and then, you know, I came out. The arresting of Jesus. How do you arrest the Lord? How? How do you arrest the Lord? Do you understand what he meant that his horns have been knocked up? Yes. In the picket, in the cast, he's arrested. And they take him all the way. They take him here, look at that. The thorns caught up in the picket. This is what he says. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Do you understand why the horns are locked yes. in the picket? And they began to call out to him, Hey! To mock him, in other words. King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff. Can you imagine they, was, they struck him on the head with a staff, with a rod, and spit on him? Can you imagine? Falling to their knees, they paid homage to mock him. Okay? And when they had mocked him, they took up the purple robe and put on his clothes. Yeah, because you know they didn't mock the Lord. Eh? They tried to humiliate the Lord, right? Yeah, because you know they, they just tried to humiliate my Lord, right? So the Lord suffered full, full battery, the full spectrum of abuse. You understand? And they led him out to be crucified. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Rufus was passing by on his way from their country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skies. Then they offered him wine mixed with meal, a stupefying drink, okay? But he did not take it. He did not take it. And they crucified him and dividing his clothes. Again, they took the cross. So, you know, the level of humiliation you understand? Yes. You would be very sick to fall into sexual sin as a pastor after the Lord passed through this. You would be very sick to fall into sin.